I like to think that in the future, we will face the reality that either we have to work with the machines, we are already doing this nowadays, or we have to live with the machines because they will be everywhere. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In today's episode, we have two interviews with experts on autonomous systems. For the first half, we'll hear from Gurdip Paul, Corporate Vice President, Head of Product Incubations at Microsoft. We'll discuss the evolution of autonomous systems, today's expansion, and the future where autonomous systems really help us solve global problems. For the second half, we'll hear from Steve Yin, Principal Software Engineer at Fresh Consulting. In this interview, we'll talk about the application to our daily lives, some of the ethics, and some insights on simulation and training of autonomous systems. Welcome, Gurdip. It's a pleasure to have you with me on the episode focused on the future of autonomous systems. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Really excited about, to talk about this topic and have listened to you, you know, in Microsoft's uh, Executive Briefing Center talk about the future of AI. And I was really blown away about your vision and, you know, continue to find your name in, if I'm just searching for autonomous systems in the future, like you're there, you're there talking to other leaders on the topic and really grateful to have you here with us. Can you spend a minute giving the listeners a bit more about your background? Great. Absolutely. Jeff, I'm a a long-time Microsoft employee. I joined in 1990, and I'm kind of like the kid who got to go back into the candy store about three times at least. The 90s for me was really about working on operating systems. I was part of the Windows NT founding team. You know, we shipped Windows NT 3.1, and then I worked on, you know, the Windows operating systems all the way to Windows XP. In particular, I was focused mostly on networking areas, but also uh, contribute a little bit towards the core OS as well. So after that, I moved on to work on real-time communications and started that business for Microsoft, which today is now Teams, but went through Link and Skype for Business. And, and during that, I also ran Skype after the acquisition of Skype a few years after that. And then my the third chapter, if you will, really has been on AI. And, you know, I got that in two parts. Uh, one was before, you know, deep learning had really sort of happened. So we're still in the world of machine learning, still data-driven, but machine learning. And then, of course, uh, for the last six years, I've been working on AI pretty much with deep learning as sort of the core engine in a variety of different ways. So that's my background. I'm My specific focus is to look at emergent technologies, emergent AI, and to see how we can create new categories for the company. And autonomous systems is one of the categories that we have created, and we are doing more and more in now. Thanks for that background. Yeah, I definitely see Microsoft as a world leader in so many ways, and it's cool that you've seen so much of that evolution. I mean, you've been there for the majority of Microsoft's life, right? So to be able to see all that growth and all that evolution, and then to be working on what's coming tomorrow, it's pretty influential, I think, to be able to shape kind of where the world is going. And I see you as kind of a key leader in that aspect. I also recognize you're on several boards of kind of other companies that are working on some of these things for the future, like quantum computing. And I think that's impressive as well, because it seems like there's a convergence of so much technology that's coming together to kind of shape the future right now. Obviously, a huge, deep background in tech 
and you know being a world leader with a world leading company in so many of those aspects and being at the early stages of some of this invention it's really perceptive to think about the, the wisdom that you have one kind of curious question i have is like what do you do for fun you've been so deep in tech like what does gurdeep do for fun yeah. this is a scary part like you know i really enjoy <laughs> what's happening in tech a lot. So I do read okay. a lot. And, you know, and that has been really one of the joys of my, especially last seven, eight years where I've been able to focus on new things and not just run very large businesses and so on. I have, you know, I can time to learn. But outside of that, you know, if it's winter, you know, I love to ski, you know, I have two dogs and uh, like to do things with my family, travel. So yeah, those kind of things. So now that we have a bit of the formality out of the way on the topic, I want to talk a little bit about the current landscape, just give people a little bit of like, hey, here's where we're at today. Then I want to kind of jump to the future and then kind of get some of your advice at the end. So if we kind of start with just autonomous systems, it's a big term. It's obviously connected to AI. Can you unpack that just for us a little bit, maybe in the context of like how autonomous systems are different than, you know, the systems that the automated systems or software of today? Absolutely. Autonomous systems are really systems that can operate in the real world. They can deal with all the variations in the real world. They can make decisions, they can plan, and they can you know, operate safely, at least to the expectations that we have. And the biggest distinction between autonomous systems and automated systems is that automated systems you know, are designed to do a specific task when everything is lined up a particular way, they can perform that task very well. For example, you know, if you are in the assembly line of cars, you have a robotic arm and the robotic arm has one task. It has to screw in the door handles when the car comes to that particular stage. And basically the way they do that is with very high precision. They'll have lasers which will, you know, go through these two holes which indicate that things are now aligned. And then the robotic hand will just go into place with high precision and then very quickly perform its task and it moves on. Now, in that model, you know, it works great, except that it takes a long time to set that system up in place. So if you wanted to, let's say, have three different cars being going through the same assembly line, it is pretty much impossible. And for each car, you'd have to do so much distinct new work. And then if anything goes wrong, like anything, you know, that this thing is not going to work and the whole line sort of stops. So fragile, expensive to set up, and then very expensive to repair and get back on track. Great. And you'd mentioned this notion about the the human, you know, you made a connection to humans there. And I wanted to double click into that just a little bit, like how do autonomous systems tie closer to humans and sort of the human brain than what we just described? Yeah. You know, the thing about autonomous systems is that we can all agree that they've been sort of under delivering on the expectation and the fantasy of autonomous systems today. I mean, you look at science fiction and you look at, you know, flying cars and Jetsons and, and you know, frankly, that world is, we're all ready for it. It's just not here yet. And then you ask the question, like, why is it not here? And that's where I think the world has sort of come to the conclusion that using these classical approaches, you know, autonomous systems are not going to happen. You know, if you write deterministic code, it's not going to happen. You need to now start using new kinds of methods. What better inspiration for these new kind of methods could there be than the human brain? I mean, the human brain is just incredible. I mean, it's just the, you know, we, we are just scratching the surface of how much we understand it, but we are starting to learn a lot more and we are heavily inspired. So for example, like even before you get into the mechanics of the human brain and understand how neurons wire to each other and how they optimize that path and so on, 
even you can look at, study the human brain from the outside and say, well, how do you teach children? How do you teach children to do something? Well, it turns out we teach children and they seem to learn tasks pretty quickly and very autonomously, like they don't need to align by a micrometer. You know, they can figure out, you throw the ball three times, you know, the kid is throwing not only that ball, fine, you'll probably pick up the next ball with two hands and still be able to throw it. And even though they've never seen a ball picked up by two hands before. So our ability to generalize, our ability to learn things step by step, our ability to really develop this notions, deep notions of common sense of like gravity. And, you know, pretty soon figure out that when you throw anything up, it sort of comes down. And, you know, to be able to learn those concepts. And that is what sort of, you know, we are now tapping into. Yeah, one thought I was thinking about related to that was if it's like a child that's learning, you know, it's sort of like, and we've been working on autonomous systems for a little while in the course of time, you know, there's been, definitely been an uptick recently. So if that child is advancing and there's an element of like nature versus nurture, you know, like we're actually trying to teach the child, right? There's that concept of machine teaching and machine learning. I was curious, like at what age would you give the autonomous system child? Now, I know there's lots of aspects of autonomous systems, but generally like, you know, are we at like age 12 and it's like, you know, age five? Sort of an abstract question, but what would you respond? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I would say it's sort of an unfair comparison in the sense that this is good since sort of the evolutionary side of the human brain. I mean, the child is, you know, it really comes into the world like primed with, you know, for priors, as we call it in AI. And it's like a machine that is optimized to operate in this real world. And that machine has been sort of evolving for over such a lot, at least for 500 million years is what we understand now since the Cambrian era, that it's been evolving. So maybe a slightly different way to think of it is that if it started 500 million years ago in biological forms that don't look anything like humans, and today we are humans with these very evolved brains, like where are we on that journey in that timeline? And I would say we're starting to see, you know, more complex organizations Definitely not where the human brain is, but we're starting to see more complex organizations. For example, you know, like if you imagine a neural net as being a literally a sort of cluster of neurons and sort of performing a set of tasks, you know, the human brain at this point has specialized parts of the brain, which, you know, these clusters of neurons, if you will, which actually do many things. So they're able to actually then reason across those different things and bring them to bear. I think we have not gotten to those next layers yet, you know, and that is why one of the big things you'll hear about AI right now is that this notion of common sense, you know, like we have such deep like language models now, but we don't still seem to have a, no, a sense of, you know, this notion of common sense so that an un, a new data point that we've never trained on, that it would be able to actually make as much sense as a human who encounters a totally new situation is able to do. Awesome. So again, I see you as sort of a world leader in autonomous systems. What are you seeing out there right now where things you see things advancing? We were working together with your team years ago, and so much has happened since then. Where do you see autonomous systems kind of starting to advance you know, today? And that could be industries or use cases, but we're obviously at the beginning of a journey that you're helping shape. Yeah, you know, the big thing I'm starting to see is that through this acceptance that this AI-based approach is, is really the path out. 
Like there's no other path and everyone has tried the different paths and so on, but there's like, this is the path and everybody needs to sort of line up on that. So we started to see the acceptance of that across, you know, whether it be armed robots and wheeled robots and winged robots, we're starting to see that. And that is quite, you know, it's great to see. And then you see people at different stages of adoption of this vision. Of course, you know, we're saying, well, we can make much more robust sensors if we put a lot of AI around the sensors. And you're starting to see like, you know, the visual side, the vision side and, and other kinds of sensors. I think, and a few leaders are now starting to go deeper than that. And we call it the perception action loop. So, you know, where that entire loop can largely be done inside AI. And that has not been the case. Even if you look at a lot of the advanced self-driving cars and so on, I mean, they are... The way they do it is like they're using AI, let's say, for for the cameras and LiDAR and, and radar, and then they immediately fall back to sort of code and then say, okay, great, if I see this, then I'm going to go do this. And then they go into the actuation logic, which also may, may or may not have much AI in it and so on. But if you can take that entire thing end to end and make it happen, I think that is a tremendous opportunity. We're starting to see leaders starting to do that. Now, are they doing it for like the entire vehicle for all the tasks? No, but they're looking at, let's say, you know, you need to land a eVTOL uh, vehicle and, you know, you see the target, which is the landing pad. We can pretty much use bigger height, like 200 feet. You can hit a button and this is going to land by itself. And that entire thing is being done with AI. Because at that point, we've taken that section of that task and we can do it like really, really well. We, and we've you know seen where you not only see success in a lot of the trained use cases, but then because we're using you know methods which have a le- level of generalizability, it, even in all kinds of unseen situations where you know partly occluded because of fog or rain or snow, you know this thing sort of will still land when you know, if it's dense fog, the human cannot operate in it, for example. So starting to see that, yeah. That's a good example. And also with that new technology, you know, taxis we can take to and from work, the amount of technology that we would hope, you know, would make that safe. Safety becomes a critical component to that. And that's where, you know, hearing that you guys are using autonomous systems makes sense. Also, obviously cars. What are some other areas that uh, you see more near-term kind of expanding with autonomous systems? Yeah, you know, we're starting to see like a really horizontal exploration and adoption. So my favorite example is Pepsi. You may have heard about PepsiCo, Cheetos. So, I mean, this one, everybody likes Cheetos or knows about Cheetos and has had orange fingers at some point or the other. And, you know, we have been working with PepsiCo to take the entire production of Cheetos and make it autonomous. Now, PepsiCo, very, very well-run organization. They have tuned and optimized their systems really, really well. But then they're hitting a plateau where, you know, whether it be the waste, because they do a lot of quality control, if that's an issue, or if they, you know, reliance on sometimes, you know, the experts who are operating those machines are not available. So what happens to productivity? If there's varying level of expertise between the operators, then you end up with some will have higher loss. Some They've hit this sort of plateau, which you just couldn't get past. And then along comes, you know, autonomous systems and AI. And we've taken that entire process and we're able to control all the different controllables in that entire manufacturing line to create, you know, to deliver at a level that 
you know, they've not been able to achieve before. In fact, they were so excited about it that their global CEO actually tweeted about it about a year ago and how they are, and, you know, they're moving globally to using the brains that are built with our autonomous systems chain. So that's, you know, just tells you that there is absolutely no limit. In fact, I would go as far as saying that any process or any system that has so many parameters that we've not been able to control them properly is can be done better now with AI and with autonomous systems. Let's jump to the future. So if we imagine, you know, what do autonomous systems look like 20 years from now? What are some of the, the biggest problems you see autonomous? You said, hey, it could apply everywhere. But as we think about the world and where we're going, there's been a lot of concern recently. How do you envision autonomous systems, you know, solving some of these, these big problems? I expect that autonomous systems will run large parts of the world in the next 20 years. Convinced of that. And I think we, you know, as a society as a sort of generation. I mean, we've seen COVID and we've seen what a devastation it had on global production and global supply and and so on. And then, you know, that's sort of one big problem. Uh, the other big problem is, you know, this climate change is sort of creating very, very quickly, very novel problems for humanity. And I expect autonomous systems to really, really play an incredible role. I'll give you a couple of very tangible examples. You know, we've seen recently the fires. In fact, right now in New Mexico, there's these fires going on in in California. And some of the fires, you know, we know were started by power lines. And some were, of course, human. So the power lines, like an intractable task for the power companies to inspect power lines across the state of California. It's just not feasible. If you had drones which could do that for you, not only do that once, they could do that like every month. You could have drones inspecting every inch of power lines, and they could be, that's an example of how you could really impact safety. The other is, you know, firefighting. You know, we believe firefighting is a task that a swarm of autonomous systems can, working in a, in a collaborative manner, can actually really, really do well without any risk to human life and so on. So I think that there is a whole, it's not just the efficiency of it. I think there is the kind of the new parameters that humans are dealing with. You know, then there are some more, you know, things that we've known for a while. Like if you look at Japan, you know, they have an aging workforce problem. And, you know, for them, it is existential. Like they have to rely on, you know, autonomous capability. Otherwise, they cannot keep their offices running. They cannot keep their factories running and so on. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in this sort of this concept that, you know, the world, nature creates the problem and the solution. And I think that in some <laughs> ways, the nature is putting both these things in front of us. You know, hey, the world is changing and it's getting kind of crazy. But you know what? You have, you know, the antidote for that. And I believe autonomous systems is it. Where else do you see, you know, autonomous systems kind of solving problems? You hit on, you know, some of the, the climate change and stuff like that. And you briefly mentioned you know, some of the supply chain issues we've been having. Any other kind of core topics come to mind as far as the future and, and how you see this impacting the world? Yeah, I think, you know, absolutely supply chain is already, you know, we're starting to see movement on that front. I think, you know, robots in particular, 
back office, back, you know, working in the factory floor. And I mean, those things I expect to be all there. I think the maybe the, the hardest thing that we will eventually get to is when you have these autonomous systems literally working around us in homes, in schools. I think that requires just a, a level of polish <laughs> and completeness because, you know, we've seen even early days of computing, you know, that until you solve those things, you will never be able to penetrate the mass, uh, you know, populations, and, and you should not. So I think that will take a lot of work, and that's where a lot of the human factors come in, and safety goes to a whole different level. No one's going to wear a hard hat, right, <laughs> in their homes and so on. So I think that, I believe, is going to be our uh, the Jetsons moment when, you know, autonomous systems have really penetrated our lives. There's so many applications for uh, bringing in autonomous systems. But as we think about our personal lives, you mentioned this notion of having robots around us. And can you speak to that a little bit more about how autonomous systems will play a role in robots? Absolutely. You know, I think I believe that the areas that we should focus on most are where the biggest need is. And if you take that lens and apply to, you know, consumer scenarios, I think assisted living is a huge place where robots can have a tremendous impact. And in fact, you know, one of my, <laughs> the greatest privileges of my work is to work with some incredible people. I, there's a scientist and roboticist uh, called Dr. Katsu Ikiuchi, who, who works with me, who is focused on assistive living. And it is really amazing because the approach that, you know, he and his team are taking is that, it's not that, you know, so you need a robot, you go buy a robot, robot comes home and robot kind of knows what to do and everything. Because, you know, at some level that is super hard. Anyway, it's that you can teach this robot so easily end-to-end tasks in your own way, the way you like them. And now this thing is like a, when you get somebody to assist you, you always tell them like, you know, a human, hey, I like to do this way. I like to sit this way and, you know, put my table here and put my coffee here because I can reach this easily. And and so but taking exactly that approach for teaching these kind of systems at all. I think assisted living, I believe, is very, is a real high need scenario. There are some other scenarios like safety in the home and security. And I think those are also super interesting. It's good to hear that. It seems like if we can get that right and do that gracefully that we're kind of setting a high, like a high bar and that that is the human nature of that and how we care for and support our elderly is there's some virtue there that I think that will have a waterfall effect. So that's, that's awesome. I just two more questions and grateful for all the insights so far. One is just around, you know, again, this concept of technology changing faster than humans, you know, can, and we have so many things coming together right now where, you know, we saw it in the last decade, things changed really quickly and we didn't quite realize it. And yet it still seems like we're just at the beginning of things really coming together and being able to, to make fast change. So what advice do you have people that are kind of caught in the middle where they're not, they haven't really been prepared for, you know, some of the changes of this technology, cha- you know, innovation? I do believe that, that with autonomous systems, there would be a level of reskilling and people will need to be, will end up focusing on different kinds of tasks. They will focus on more executive tasks. They will focus on 
implications of these kind of systems and solving the new kind of problems that are, you know, like, you know, when the whole bioethics field exploded, when suddenly, you know, they were test tube life forms of life, or there was creating uh, replicas, genetic replicas, and so on. And in the same way, I think with autonomous systems, there is a new kinds of jobs that are going to emerge. And I think we need to stay open to that. And the thing about progress and technology is that it's got, it's on its own journey. And in some cases, we can not adopt something just because it is possible because we decide intentionally not to adopt it for example you know this uh, there was there's been cases where <laughs> this surveillance or these databases where every face in the world is there and you can look it up and all that and we would say hey, you know that's maybe not something we accept as society but the fact it is there you know the fact that you can clone uh, things is there but are we cloning humans all over the place no we've decided we are going to draw on this so to some extent we can hold things back but other things we will not be able to hold back or at least hold back for a long period of time you know you will not be able to hold back the fact that a business owner who has a factory is going to make some parts of that autonomous and you can't hold that back economy and economics and everything is going to drive you know some of those factors so in which case reskilling and leaning into that and being much more uh, proactive about it as society you know i'll leave you with this anecdote on this that you know after the first industrial revolution you know and suddenly these mechanical machines steam engines and you know hey, the world was going to change the big factories were set up but economy actually went sideways for about 40 years and that is called the Engels pause. Engel was this uh, philosopher, uh, thinker. In fact, Karl Marx was influenced a lot by him. He writes about that. That happened because the workforce didn't exist. You know, we had a gradient society. And now suddenly they're supposed to work, show up in machines and, you know, the old Charlie Chaplin, you know, image of people screwing there. You hadn't even reskilled people to do that. And so we can't afford to do that. Again, we should learn from these past things and apply them to what the next 15, 20 years are going to be and, and the things are going to change. Thank you for your wisdom and excited for how you continue to shape it. You know, I think 32 years at Microsoft, that's amazing. You know, how are you going to keep shaping the next 32 years? Seems like that's the journey taking us into 2050, which, which a lot of people are talking about and really excited to watch this and think about how we can design and build it with intent, with people like you that, that care, you know, about the technology, but also about the human experience. And people like you, Jeff. So. Thank you. Good to have you on the show. Really appreciate the time and your busy schedule. And again, grateful. So great to be here. Great questions. And uh, yeah, exciting future. Steve, grateful to have you here with us as a leader in automated sort of in autonomous systems with a deep history in hardware and software and algorithms. Can you give the audience a bit more about your background? Yes, it's good to be here with you. And uh, I started from electrical engineering training all the way up from college to graduate school and get my PhDs in ECE from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It's a good process in that I got very solid training in the electrical engineering front. And then later, all my career path has been dealing with the signal processing, acquiring signal, analyze those signals, and use the information and the features we got to control the system to get the job done. It's a closed-loop control process with certain autonomous, yeah. As I understand it, you have two PhDs. You've done 20 external publications, and you're an inventor of 15 patents. Is that accurate? 
only one PhD, but I did have a postdoc experience with Harvard Medical School. Postdoc. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, it sounds like you have a, a deep set of experience just in, on the educational side, but then that on the practical side, actually having run a business yeah. and also worked for some you know world-leading companies. I learned a little bit about your experience at Philips. Can you speak to some of your experience there with algorithms and autonomous systems and kind of how, what you guys were working on there? Yeah, the lab, Philips lab, actually is a very good place to do those fancy researches. And we are actually targeting about like five to 10 years technology trained in the lab, trying to think about what's going next, uh, especially for any technologies that's related with the Philips products, the medical products. In there, I encountered one interesting project that is to use the ultrasound image to guide the high-intensity ultrasound wave to cause the coagulation of the deep bladder and inside tissue. So it's all a minimal invasive surgery type, but it has to be done without human interference. That's considered that was the time in 2005 to 2006. That was a quite bold initiation to start this kind of project. It's sponsored by DARPA. Of course, they are always looking for some wide off the wax things. But the interesting part is that the algorithm really plays a key role in the whole process. You first need to look at the image, and from the image, you extract the bleeding site inside tissue, then feed that information to the energy delivery site using the ultrasound phased array to deliver energy into the tissue, raise the temperature locally not into other places, and then cause the tissue coagulations. It should be done all autonomous. So we are achieving a certain level of success by delivering a test bed system. It's a prototype system that we can stop the bleeding within 90 seconds without harming other tissues. So that's a good project to go. And it's the process that we can look forward, think about down the road, what can be improved, what do we need to further make this product, make this prototype to be a viable product for other similar cases. That's great to hear. Now, Fresh, you're involved in uh, robotics, and we're trying to pave the way for you know, robots to connect with robots, robots to connect to humans, and that's going to involve autonomous systems. Can you tell us more about some of the work you're doing and how that, how that can shape the future? Yeah, that's even a, being a more interesting part. I think this is going to be the version 3.0 of my career here, that we are diving to the scenarios that we are trying to lower the deployment cost of the robotic system by not only implementing a robot solution, but also some other data analytical solutions to facilitate the cooperation between the robots and even between the robots and humans. This is a huge undertake. If it's successful, I think it will open another big chapter for everything in the automation space. One of the things you had mentioned was how you build those systems with intent. You know, and I think your experience building in the classroom, you know, building algorithms and software for the classroom and thinking about students and the interaction there, I think is really applicable to this notion of building autonomous systems with intent. One of the things I heard you say was, you know, how do you keep the humans part of the loop when they need to be? And I'm interested in more your thoughts around that. Like, when does it make sense to make something truly autonomous? And at what point do you kind of 
build in, you know, this sort of human connection and keep humans in the loop? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Actually, thinking about human in the use cases, first of all, they can be the object to be interacted. And second of all, they can be some type of operator or controller administrator in the system. So these are two different roles. And for the first type, it's going to be, we are treating that engineering, we are treating that as a typical object in the environment. We are collecting its status and monitoring its behaviors and trying to understand what it does, what he or she does, not it. But uh, it's a typical engineering solution for that case. But for the human interference as an operator or administrator role, that definitely requires a lot more work. You have to present the data to that operator. The operator needs to use the human wisdom and the business logic to make a decision, then participate into the control part of the whole process. For those that are like newer to this topic, you know, there's a lot of terms that are associated with this, with autonomous systems. You know, there's like machine teaching, there's like simulated environments, there's digital twin, there's like reinforcement learning. Can you walk through some of those terms and kind of explain in sort of plain English, like what some of those mean? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, definitely the digital twins is a buzzword right now. It's not a very new concept for the engineers because we always use the simulation and visualization to help us to understand the process. And I think what's even better is that the digital twins would offer us an opportunity to try to simulate some edge cases which are not able to duplicate in the daily usages. That is to test the engineering limits of the system or trying to identify any potential mechanism we can improve the systems. We often use simulations to do a lot of work in our daily projects. I think that's a great place to have the value for the digital twins technology in all the robotics work, automation work. You cannot do everything from the real lab, everything that's going to be very costly and time consuming. So yeah, that's a good way to use the technology for our work. And talking about the machine learning part, especially the reinforced learning and deep learning and all those technologies, we have seen quite a good adaptation using those technologies for solving our problems. And sometimes they show much better value and the potentials compared with the conventional methodologies. And this is the part where I'm especially interested in because uh, all my previous college trainings are on the conventional methodologies. I still remember that my thesis advisor, Professor Bill O'Brien, he once told us that you should graduate within five years from this school because by the time you graduated, the first year education is going to be outdated. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the case, that uh, everything evolves at a much faster pace nowadays. So we have to be prepared to adapt to that change, yeah. This notion of like mapping the real world so that you can simulate it and train it, right, before it goes out into the real world is sort of like a fascinating concept that we're trying to, you know, we're trying to mimic sort of the real world so that we can train in it, right, and we can teach it before you go deploy it, right? And so tell us more about that. Like, as we think about autonomous systems, how are people using these simulated environments? Yeah, well, simulation 
definitely helps a lot in that case, especially when we talk about uh, mapping the world. Let's think about that as uh, like a first step when people interact with the world. The first thing we do is to percept what's surrounding us. So as long as we get the information in a digital way, so we would have a, this is the input to our system block. In that system block, then we can apply all kinds of methodologies to develop the algorithms, to test the feasibility and validate it, and also do some parametric studies. Everything can be done there. I know one good example is that the Boeing has already transferred all of its design process into the digital pipeline. So that's a great way for a big enterprise to be able to use the technology, use the simulation to speed up their design and lower the cost for the R&D. And in our case, I will say for the perception side, I will use the SLAM as a simple example. SLAM means the simultaneous location and mapping for the surrounding. It's basically using the camera to shoot around your surrounding. And the camera is smart enough to take note of each pose, each orientation of its uh, shooting. Then we stitch together all those uh, images. Then we can reconstruct the 3D space information around the camera. This is going to be very essential for any mobile robots or any automation system. You need to know the surrounding. So that's the case. We are using the technology and the simulation to get the job done. What are you excited about from a perception perspective? Because we know sensors are a big part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. Well, the perception perspective, there's a huge community working on that. I think the research front, there are a lot of new ideas popping up every day. If you go to those conferences, you will see quite amazing results uh, happening every day, mostly from those young students. But uh, I would say for the implementation side. We have seen a turning point where by the down selection and the screening of all the previous achievements from the research communities, we can pick some useful ones for our implementations. And those can be deployed into the edge devices, which is able to be plugged into a very energy efficient mobile chases for use in the automation process. And this is a big step because previously when we talk about those models, especially in the computer vision models using deep learning and everything else, you will always feel the cost effectiveness is not that great when you try to use those technologies. They are useful, but they are not very valuable in terms of the implementations. But nowadays we can see with the computing power boosting up and with all those uh, very nice and uh, lightweighted algorithm models being available. Also the hardware, the computer camera hardwares, adding together, they make the implementation to be feasible. I view that as a product ready stage coming up. Because previously, in the five years ago, we say it's technology ready. But nowadays, I see the product ready moment is coming. Then if we talk about the next five years, I would say the commercially availability, commercially ready state will be there with our efforts, adding everybody's efforts, yeah. You kind of hinted at the future a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about the future. You know, here we are today. You've been, you know, deep in this space for like the last probably 30 years, you know, from school to kind of your experience, like in, in the world of algorithms and software and hardware, 
And that's kind of the future of autonomous systems. As we look to the future, you know, like 20 years from now, what do you see autonomous systems doing? I believe the autonomous systems will be ubiquitous everywhere. It will be like everyday normal items for everybody's life, not only in the factory floor, but also in some consumer use cases. Uh, Think about now, like in China, some companies are deploying those uh, robot taxis on the open road already. In U.S., it's the case that we have a couple of companies doing this too. This is the beginning. I think uh, with all those technologies penetration to our daily life, and sooner or later, we'll, have, we'll see a lifestyle change for everybody. This is what's happening. The thought is that we're building things that are designed for us not to control. Mm-hmm. But we very much still want to control and have intent in autonomous systems. Elaborate a bit more on that. What are your thoughts? Well, I wouldn't like the word of control per se, because uh, in the end, you cannot control anything. Especially, I don't believe we can control robots in all the aspects as the technology evolves. What we can do is that we can find a way to live in harmony with those devices and the robots. And robots need to respect the human being, and we also need to respect the robot. Because there are also quite a lot of debate, either in the, you know, the science fiction society or in the public space about should we set up some fundamental rules for the robots? Like, the, first of all, robots should not hurt human beings, right? The same thinking about that is uh, if people are using the AI or perception computer vision technologies, trying to control people's life. Like, in some spaces, they use surveillance cameras in a very abusive way, trying to probe your privacy or let you behave good. That's not the right way to use the AI. And also in the educational use, some teachers believe that the AI is interfering with the natural process of the education. So that's the fear. And But looking at this inevitable, we have to use those technologies down the road. So how do we reach a common ground among the people? especially among the people to reach a mutual understanding on what's the boundary for us to use the technologies. And the boundary can be changing over time because nowadays we think that's the boundary, but in 10 or 20 years, we may think the boundary can move up or move down. That's all debatable and it should be all negotiable. Yeah. What are some of the bigger problems you see autonomous systems helping with in the future? The bigger problems so far I can see we already have that working in the smart, smart factories, and we have the logistic applications. And also down the road, I still see if we plug in the human factors, I would see the lifestyle uh, space would have some opportunities there because it's going to be an easy implementation for one small problem. Then, but if you're adding up all those the small problems being solved, then finally it's going to be a large scope of the lifestyle change for our daily life. I would say, again, I'm using the Alexa as an example, and also the Amazon Go store. I believe businessly, they are still not making money by deploying that many stores everywhere. But that's the trend that it's a combination of the supply chain management and the logistics and the shopping experience and everybody's daily lifestyle factors being mixed together in that model. 
I really hope that model could be successful sooner than later, but we'll have to see. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Amazon Go because it's an element where you brought together a lot of technology to try to make someone autonomous in their shopping experience where they're not gated by, you know, there's no friction there for kind of checking out, right? But I think that's a parallel for autonomous systems in general, right? It's like you're gated or impeded or slowed down, but really autonomous systems should serve the human experience for having more autonomy and hopefully less monotony, you know, or less friction. And I think that's probably when we get it right, right? Where it's like we've enabled us to be more autonomous and we know that, you know, machines and robots are like, or the technology that, that Amazon's building as an example with Amazon Go, it's like that's, you know, it's all around that same sort of thread, right? Is autonomy, that being a, a human virtue that that's important to humans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, in our previous work, when we deployed those uh, motion quantification technologies into the classrooms for the Chinese students there, and they already see that the measurement, the, the quantification of the motion indices and all, everything else is valuable. And it's done without the human notice and uh, it's quite natural to fit into the loop. So I think thinking down the same pipeline, when we talk about the robots doing the work, if we still have the human being involved in the loop, it should be the same philosophy that will have the perception down in a very natural manner and also establish the communication between the human and the robots in another more efficient and uh, pervasive way to get the job done. As far as uh, where do you see things going wrong with kind of AI and, and autonomous systems? Where do you see us kind of making mistakes? Well, somehow we would have higher expectation for the short-term results. So I'm citing Amara's law is that uh, we often, you know, overestimating the short-term effects of those technologies, but we are often also underestimating that the long-term value for those technologies. So anything that starts from new and scratch, especially if you are trying to establish a new business operation model using the new technologies, it will not be an easy way. And uh, somehow for the e-commerce space, we have seen the capital driving this force for quite a bit and making it to be widespread acceptance nowadays. So, but in the autonomous systems, the process may be a little slower than that, partly because that the development cost is still not very cheap So nowadays. And we are trying to integrate all kinds of state-of-the-art sensors and actuators into the system but comes to the down selection and all the engineering work, that's still quite brain intensive, brain power intensive, and manpower intensive too. And so we would not expect a very quick and snap result just by one iteration. There may be many iterations to reach a status that you can use it into your business operation. So I would suggest that uh, any business decision makers be open and be optimistic to this technology trend, thinking about automating your process down the road and also be a little forward-looking instead of just uh, staying where you are. Because if you stay where you are, sooner or later you will be lagged behind everybody else. So, but 
on the practical side, in implementation, you really have to set a goal, but reach the goal in different steps, one step at a time, making it to be controllable and cost-effective, especially you have to control your risk bottom line for your business. Any other advice or thoughts on the future as it relates to AI and autonomous systems that, that we haven't discussed so far? Yeah, I think for the future, technology-wise, I think people are working diligently on different kinds of ideas and everything else. Especially, we should be prepared for a new kind of a computation uh, workflow. Because nowadays, when we are talking about the, either the CPU computing or the GPU computing, we are dealing with the, the data in either the scalar form or the matrix form. We often talk about the tensor computing in the GPU because that would be very efficient to deal with those uh, heavy load of matrix data because everything being discretized to the linear algebra space. But uh, down the road, I would say if we want to achieve much better precision and much better prediction based on the collected data, we would need to use the time series in a high frame rate analysis. In that sense, we have to think about changing the way we are dealing with the data computation right now. I have seen many progresses being happening right now, such as people are thinking about, just for example, using the camera as an example, because everybody is familiar with that kind of technology. I mean, nowadays, all those cameras, they have a shutter which you are doing a time average projection of the pixel intensity change in a picture, in, in an image. But if you think about it, how about if you can deal with each single pixel in the time series manner? In that way, you can track down the intensity change per each pixel. In that way, you are, you are dividing this problem, the, the time average the projection to the image into multi-channel data processing problem. In that way, it will enable a lot of other opportunities for the engineering work. And so that would mean a lot of more new algorithm implementations, which could be more computational efficient and less cost in the GPU and the power consumption requirements. Those are all very important, especially for the autonomous systems. You need to think about how you deploy a much efficient and a much low cost system to the data usage. That's an essential part for making this to be a wide accepted technologies down the road, yeah. The newer kind of camera technologies, typically people refer that as the event camera, so that the event camera would be able to track down the, you know, the intensity change history, time history of each pixel. That's a great start. And I think right now the resolution, the spatial resolution is not that great. But, you know, with all the silicon technologies being advanced, I believe sooner or later it would have very high definition in the space and also very high time definition signals provided to us for further processing. So that's the, I think that's a very interesting and amazing part. We are very much looking forward to that area to come. I think as human beings, we are naturally fitting into the loop of identifying the problem, solving the problem, then identifying new problems to solve new problems again. This is like an endless loop. And right now, everybody is, is very enthusiastic in this space. I think that's a very good sign to move forward. One last question before we close out, and I appreciated all your insights so far, Steve. Any advice for those that might be thinking about the future and changes that are coming and are coming into kind of a career 
coming into some career choices, you know, there's a lot changing right now. So any advice for the young student that's thinking about where should I focus? <laughs> yeah, that's quite a personal choice. But from my experience, I'm very fortunate so far, actually, to be able to tag along with all the technology trained. And I still enjoy the work. And I sometimes, actually, right now, I'm still doing some coding for some clients' projects. And it's interesting that I, if I use the old tools, I can get the job done. But I like to search for some new tools to help the job. So for anybody's career, especially from the young generation, my first advice would be follow your heart. Just to stick with what you are interested in instead of what could make you big money in the beginning. I think as long as you build yourself up and establish yourself in your career, especially talking about an, in the engineering side, you become certain expert in one domain, especially even if it's a very narrow domain, and all the rewards will come back to you. You don't need to worry about the rewards. I mean, rewards could be the money, the cash, or anything else, the prize, anything else. But I think the true pride for me is still that uh, you would have the opportunities to to dig more, to learn more in your everyday. So that's actually very satisfactory to me. Appreciate that advice and the, the time you've spent with us, Steve, and your experience in leadership. So great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to participate. And also, I'm glad that uh, we can, you know, trigger more pounding thoughts among the community to let everybody to participate into the conversation. Thank you. The Future of Podcasts is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.